Professor Emeritus at the Albany College of Medicine. I think Albany Medical College, I said it backwards. Um, He's been doing a lot of research into Ibogaine and one of its congeners, uh, known as 18MC. We're going to bring him on in a minute. Uh, Before we do that, let me do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge, little support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting alcohol altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Stanley Glick, is with us right now. We're going to bring him on. Hi, Stan. How are you doing this evening? Okay, how are you? I'm doing very well. Um, well, tell us a little bit about Ibogaine first. Um, something about the history. Where where does Ibogaine come from? Why do people think it might be helpful for addiction? Well, I first heard about Ibogaine in 1989. I received a call from a gentleman by the name of Howard Lotsoff. And the story he told me was that in the, around 1970 or so, he was at a party with a bunch of people who were all apparently uh, confessed uh, drug addicts of one kind or another. He himself was a, a heroin addict and probably a few other things as well. And someone gave him uh, a dose of this drug Ibogaine, which is a naturally occurring alkaloid that's uh, usually extracted from the bark of the root of a plant called Tabernantha aboga. It's a four-foot-high shrub that grows primarily in West Africa in the country of Gabon. Uh, How this drug got to the United States, no one has ever been able to tell me. Uh, But somehow it did get here. And Mr. Lotsoff and six of his friends uh, took the drug. And supposedly they went through this um, bizarre experience that lasted about 36 hours, where initially they saw a variety of sensations that were sort of exaggerations of, of real stimuli. Uh, And later on, they uh, had what some people call hallucinations. They preferred to refer to them as waking dreams. And the the party line, which I've heard from actually several people have taken it, is that you see your life as a motion picture going backwards in time. Uh, The last eight hours of this experience, they slept, and when they woke up, uh, they supposedly had lost their cravings for drugs. And long-term, five of the seven people that took the drug that evening apparently remained drug-free for a long time afterwards. Uh, after the, Originally, uh, this was when this occurred, uh, Mr. Lotsoff did, uh, didn't capitalize on it, but he did a variety of other things for a few years. And about 10 years later, he started a company uh, to promote the use of the substance. And he thought he'd had a cure for drug addiction, and if he told the world about this, they would herald him as a savior, and he would rid the mankind of this terrible scourge. Uh, along the way, he discovered there was such a thing as science, the FDA, uh, scheduled controlled drugs, and all kinds of rules and regulations. And he realized that he had to get scientists to study it if this was ever going to be uh, uh, an accepted treatment. So he started calling uh, every drug abuse scientist in the country to study it, and for better or for worse, uh, I was the first one who was curious enough uh, to investigate it. And at the time, I thought I would give it to a few animals. They would do something bizarre, and, and I would uh, have my curiosity satisfied, and that would be the end of the story. 
Uh, we did give it to a few animals. Actually, it took us a while to get it. It turned out not to be so easy to get it, but we did manage to get it. Uh, and we had animals that were trained at the time to self-administer morphine. Uh, we used a very standard drug self-administration paradigm uh, in rats, which is probably the best animal model of any human behavior. Basically, rats in virtually any species you can get to a laboratory will self-administer all the same drugs to which people become addicted. Uh, and the analogy is so strong that if a new drug is invented and an animal will self-administer it, uh, you can be pretty sure that if this drug finds its way to the street, that people are going to become addicted to it. So what you do is you implant a catheter uh, in a vein, and the animal is taught to press a lever or, or to do something. It doesn't have to be pressing a lever, but usually it is. Uh, and when it presses the lever, it gets a small infusion of the drug. So we gave ibogaine to animals that were trained to self-administer morphine, uh, and lo and behold, their self-administration markedly decreased. At the time... Uh, that we first saw this in the day of administration, this wasn't too big a surprise because the animals looked very bizarre. Uh, their limbs were were splayed outward. Uh, they had some whole body tremors, and I thought they just were having difficulty uh, pressing the lever and that it was some kind of motor effect. But what was surprising was that a day later, when they appeared entirely normal, and what we subsequently learned, most of the ibogaine has been excreted by then, but a day later, uh, their self-administration behavior was still markedly depressed. So I started to get more interested in, in it, uh, and we eventually studied uh, several different models, including cocaine, nicotine, methamphetamine. Uh, others studied alcohol, and it really worked in, in every model. Uh, but I don't know if you want me to keep going with the story and how we got to my conscience. Keep going, keep going, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, eventually uh, other people started to investigate it as well, and it eventually was found to have some uh, toxicity. Uh, certainly the toxicity that got the most attention was the neurotoxicity. It was found that very high doses of it, uh, which damaged cells and in the middle part of the cerebellum, which is a large structure in the back of the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. It's doubtful that people ever take doses large enough uh, to, to do this, but there, but there was a lot of publicity about this, and this began to elicit a kind of backlash against the use of the substance. What was probably mm -hmm. more dangerous uh, was the fact that it could have effects in the heart. It can slow the heart markedly. It's actually relatively mm -hmm. easy to treat, uh, but if not recognized, uh, it can be lethal. Uh, so, there mm -hmm. were, so after discovering these uh, and a lot of publicity about these side effects, I started to collaborate with a medicinal chemist at the University of Vermont by the name of Martin Kuna, and I was introduced to him by a colleague uh, in, in Albany uh, who had a different kind of medicinal chemistry expertise. And Martin started synthesizing one congener after another and sending them to me. And we started to screen them and were looking for something that would produce the effects in drug self-administration but would not produce, would not disrupt normal behaviors and something that would not markedly affect the, the appearance and behavior of the animal in a, in a variety of other ways. And after testing about 15 such compounds, we eventually tested over 60. But the, the first one to really look uh, extremely interesting was a compound that we now call 18MC, which stands for 18-methoxychloroneridine. Uh, and 18MC decreased drug self-administration, all the same models, uh, but it did not uh, disrupt any kinds of normal behaviors uh, and did not produce these motor whole-body tremors. 
Uh, and eventually we did neurotoxicity studies and cardiovascular studies and did not produce the, the toxicity that ibogaine produces. So it appeared to be at least as efficacious, perhaps a little bit more so, in drug self-administration models, uh, but did not have the side effects of ibogaine. And we started to pursue the development of this uh, compound as a potential uh, treatment. And I'm happy to say that we're at the point now where we're just beginning uh, to be able to test this compound in humans. And uh, I hope I live long enough to find out if it does uh, all the wonderful things that I think it can do. So that's okay. the short version of the story. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question then. Uh, there were some trials of uh, LSD in Saskatchewan in the 60s for treating alcoholism, and yeah. they attributed their success um, because they seem to have quite a bit of success, although they didn't run randomized controlled trials. They attributed that to a spiritual experience from the LSD and hallucinogenic properties. But um, how does that fit in with Ibogaine? It's also hallucinogenic. Is, is that an important component of the change or not? Well, that's an interesting point that you raise because this is something that is somewhat controversial in the sense that there are some people who believe that the hallucinogenic effects the so-called waking dreams, are a crucial part of the experience. Uh, there are other people who believe this is just annoying. And I, I've talked to people uh, who've been treated, and I've talked to people before they were treated and after they treated, uh, at least the, the people that I think are most reliable, uh, simply think this is an irritation rather than a positive aspect of the drug. And we believe that uh, the congener that we're developing actually will not produce these effects because it lacks a couple of the actions that Ibogaine has uh, that I believe are responsible for these effects. Uh, so it, uh, I mean, it remains, this remains to be proven, but that's what I think is going to end up being the case. Uh, do you know or has anyone studied, is there much difference uh, in the hallucinogenic properties of LSD and uh, Ibogaine? Do they have different yes, they, types of hallucinations? Uh, I can't say that anyone has ever done a controlled study comparing the two, uh, which uh, in a way that you could make a definitive conclusion. But as far as we know in the data that's available, the hallucinatory effects appear to be quite different. Uh, and there's actually a way to study this in animals. Uh, it's called drug discrimination, uh, where you, which is a way of of studying the similarity uh, and differences of drugs. And, and they have been compared in this kind of a paradigm, and it appears that animals, rats in particular, can distinguish the two drugs. They don't appear to be, be acting in a similar way. Uh, and LSD has, they both affect serotonin, which is certainly responsible for the LSD-induced hallucinations, uh, but they affect it in somewhat different ways. LSD uh, acts on a particular serotonin receptor, whereas uh, Ibogaine releases serotonin. So they have somewhat similar effects, but, but most people believe that, the, that there's a real distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And have people reported, uh, people who have taken the two drugs reported uh, differences in their hallucinogenic effects? I've never encountered anyone who's, who has ever told me he's taken both. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably <laughs> happened, happened, but uh, no one has told me if they have. Okay. Well, what, what's going on with the, with the clinical trials? Uh, I believe you're slated for trial. Tell, tell me more about that. Yes. Um, 
uh, the company that's developing AT&MC is called Savant HWP. Uh, they have partnered with another company called Hebron, which is a Portuguese company. Excuse me, a Brazilian company. They speak Portuguese. It's a Brazilian company. And the reason this company in Brazil is interested, and they've sort of gotten interested in drug abuse as well, but, but the re- reason they really got into this is uh, it was discovered a few years ago that this drug, by a totally different mechanism, uh, is appears to be therapeutic in treating leishmaniasis, which is a pretty horrible protozoan parasitic disease that produces can produce uh, terrible skin ulcers that don't heal. It can, be, can produce visceral ulcers inside and, and, and internally as well. Uh, it can be lethal. Uh, and there are only a couple of drugs that work in this disease, and so they are very interested in, in possibly developing another one. Uh, and it appears that the drug interferes with the cellular metabolism of the parasite, but not of the host. So after this was learned, uh, and this occurred via a, a scientist in Brazil who asked uh, us to send them some drug, uh, and eventually I put the two companies in contact with each other, uh, and they've decided to, they have a, an agreement now where they're partnering in the initial clinical trials. Phase one clinical trials are pretty much the same regardless of the intended use, and they're primarily to determine the safety of the drug and its metabolism. So Savant is supplying the drug, uh, and uh, Hebron is conducting uh, the trials under the guidance of Savant. Uh, the first two cohorts of subjects were actually tested uh, last August, uh, and so far, the drug looks safe, and it turned out that the bioavailability in terms of how the drug gets into the brain is actually uh, much better than uh, we believed it would be based on the animal studies. Uh, they do have approval now to do phase one studies in this country. Uh, right now, the, the major obstacle really is funding. Uh, they're trying to, to raise a lot of capital to do this because, as you probably know, uh, getting a, developing a drug is a very expensive proposition. Uh, so that's uh, mm-hmm. we're hopeful that new funding will be coming very shortly, and and uh, that trials uh, will be ongoing uh, in this country by possibly by the end of the year, or early next year. Mm-hmm. So since these are trials on human beings, um, have the human beings uh, reported any side effects, any adverse effects? So far, no. So, so far, there there was one person who had a who had a very transient. Uh, uh, decrease in blood pressure, and that was about it. Everyone else uh, apparently had, as far as I know, had had no side effects of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I saw somewhere that this drug might also be used for obesity. Yes, uh, we, that has yes, certainly to be tested in people, but we have a fair amount of data in animals showing that it decreases consumption of sweet and fatty foods. Uh, and if you give it uh, repeatedly to animals that are on a high-fat diet, and high-fat diet will make rats fat pretty quickly, uh, it will prevent that from occurring. Uh, if you give, put them on a high-sucrose diet, they will also become fat, and it prevents that from occurring as well. Uh, so, And for many people, uh, obesity really develops and is maintained really as a consequence of an addictive disorder. Sometimes they're referred to as the behavioral addictions, which is sort of redundant. Uh, but I believe it will be useful at least for, for some people who are, who really eat compulsively for which eating really does resemble an addictive disorder. Mm-hmm. I would like to get a hold of some and lose some weight because after I quit smoking cigarettes, I got really big. <laughs> um, you're, not, you're not alone. 
I know a number of people <laughs> to whom that's happened. Uh, tell me a little bit about what pathway in the brain uh, does this work on and what receptors are involved? Okay, well, that's the really novel part about this. Virtually, uh, you may know that there's a pathway in the brain that's uh, commonly referred to as the reward pathway. And this pathway has cell bodies that are situated in the area of the midbrain called the ventral tegmental area. And these cell bodies project uh, to a structure in the medial part of the forebrain called the nucleus accumbens. And these are neurons contain the neurotransmitter dopamine. And dopamine is sometimes referred to as the reward neurotransmitter. Uh, and virtually, it's been shown that virtually every drug of abuse that's been studied, uh, which is almost every drug of abuse, one way or another elevates dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, it can do this by releasing dopamine from the terminals. It can do it by inhibiting the reuptake of dopamine back into the terminals. Uh, it can do it indirectly uh, uh, by inhibiting the release of inhibitory neurotransmitters in the, in the midbrain that would normally inhibit these dopamine neurons. There are a variety of ways this can occur. But the bottom line is that every addictive drug that's been studied elevates dopamine. And most of the experimental treatments for drug addiction have really focused on different ways of influencing this dopamine-containing pathway. Uh, what we discovered about 18MC and Ibogaine as well is that it does not directly affect this pathway. It does so indirectly, and it actually acts uh, in another pathway that has no short, uh, catchy name to it. It's called the habenulo interpeduncular pathway. And this other pathway has cell bodies in an area called the medial habenula that project to another area called the interpeduncular nucleus. And these neurons contain the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And the crucial receptor that appears to be important for 18MC, and I believe Ibogaine's effects as well, is called the alpha-3, beta-4 nicotinic receptor. Uh, and this, what we've shown that blocking this receptor indirectly uh, will reduce the ability of drugs to elevate dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. There are many interconnections between these two pathways. Uh, some, uh, in, but there are a number of different routes by which one uh, can affect the other. And in fact, there was a, a flurry of studies on this in around 1980, and uh, the the benulin-interbenclar pathway was actually referred to as an alternate reward pathway because if you put electrodes in the brain, animals would self-stimulate this pathway just the way they self-stimulate the dopamine pathway. Uh, so actually, I think what occurred is that we sort of indirectly discovered the importance of this pathway uh, several years later in terms of the mode of action of how our, how our drug works. So that's, uh, so it makes it, so what it does is it modulates the dopamine pathway, but does it, uh, Indirectly, and because of this, is this is probably the reason why it affects addiction to virtually all drugs that we've studied, because it's not affecting a specific locus in the dopamine pathway. Uh, so it can really modulate the actions of all drugs which directly affect this pathway. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so it's really unlike anything that's actually even been proposed as a potential treatment. So it, uh, it's, it's novel, and I think uh, uh, because of that, it uh, will likely be very effective. Okay. Uh, let me ask you another question. Um, and I just thought this today about some other experiments that you had done, and I thought they were fascinating. And some people didn't like them, but you were uh, studying the effects of cocaine on rats when you played the music from Beethoven and Miles <laughs> Davis. 
<laughs> yes, that that was the most misunderstood paper that I've ever published, and we got a lot of initial flack from that. Uh, what we did is one of the things that we wanted to study, which is really an important thing to study, is the effect of our drug on craving. Craving is the cause mm -hmm. of relapse, and there are a number of things that can induce craving. The drug itself can induce craving. A low dose of the drug, a drug similar to the addictive drug, can induce craving. Uh, stress can induce craving, but probably the most common inducer of craving are stimuli or cues associated with the drug. So uh, to give you an example, you've taken, uh, let's say you have an addict who's addicted to cocaine. Uh, they managed uh, to stop, uh, they managed to go into abstinence for several months. They go to a party and they see a little silver spoon that's this, very similar to the silver spoon they used to shovel their cocaine. Just the sight of that that spoon can elicit intense cravings to take the drug uh, and f unfortunately often does induce uh, taking the drug itself. So craving is extremely important and is extremely difficult for addicts to deal with because it it uh, it never really goes away entirely and it takes a long time. And there have been various uh, approaches to dealing with this, and uh, particularly counter conditioning, for example, showing people the cues associated with the drug and trying to extinguish their, their responses to it. But it's a very difficult thing to extinguish because the association has been established repeatedly so many times. That's why smoking is so difficult to quit because people take uh, a pack a day smoker, uh, puffs a cigarette about 73,000 times a year. Uh, so this is a mm -hmm. very heavily reinforced behavior, and it's no wonder that it's difficult to break. Uh, so mm -hmm. in developing a model for this, uh, for, for craving, we wanted to have a stimulus associated with the cocaine, uh, and then after the animal has made this association, then we would just present the stimulus, which should make the animal want to self-administer the drug again, and, uh, and then we would see if our drug interfered with this abil ability of the cue to do so. Uh, most people, when they use cues of this sort, uh, will use various tones or blinking lights or something like that. And I wanted to use something that was more similar to what people experience. And it occurred to me that music was uh, a very common such cue. Uh, and uh, I ended up uh, selecting a, a, a version of Miles Davis playing the tune 4 uh, because it had relatively uh, a few... Um, Small changes in frequency. It wasn't. It wasn't a something that was going to startle the animal. It's a fairly repetitive tune, uh, and so we used that as the cue. And much to my delight, it worked exceedingly well. Uh, and then eventually, we incorporated it into the experimental model. We found that uh, if we trained rats to self-administer cocaine while uh, the music was playing, uh, and then extinguished them and removed the cocaine uh, from them for several weeks. If we reintroduced the music, even without cocaine being available, they would uh, exhibit the behavior. They would press the lever and try to get the drug uh, as if they were craving the drug. And if we gave 18MC prior to the craving test at the end, uh, it pretty much abolished uh, the occurrence of this behavior. So we had a model that worked very well, and 18MC worked very well in the model. Uh, and the fact that we used music, someone picked up on this and made a big deal about how we were wasting taxpayer money by playing music to rats because they failed to understand the, the importance of the model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the story I read uh, was said that the uh, the rats liked the 
they liked uh, Miles Davis when they had cocaine, but they didn't like Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turned out that Miles Davis worked better than Beethoven did. Then that that was really that we were simply looking, trying to find something that would work. We we were less concerned about the musical aspects of it. Uh, then about whether the particular music we use was effective in eliciting this craving behavior. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so let me ask you uh, something else, which is about, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, organizations uh, and companies currently that are off offering Ibogaine therapy, you know, outside the U.S. You know, you have to yes. take this trip and get this Ibogaine tourism to cure your addiction or whatever. And uh, are any of these trustworthy? Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm very antsy about them. Not not that I know of. But I don't know, certainly don't have detailed knowledge of how they operate. Uh, but I know that some of them are really nothing more than a motel room. Uh, and what concerns me most about these facilities is whether they have on-site medical care uh, because it mm-hmm. can uh, have dangerous effects. It's readily treated, but if you don't have the the right medical support system in place, uh, it can be a quite dangerous experience. Uh, I, I get calls and emails from from people actually uh, almost uh, pretty much on a uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, wanting to me to recommend one place or another. Unfortunately, I really can't recommend any of them. Uh, but it is and mm-hmm, it's certainly mm-hmm. not for everyone. There's some people I've talked to, a number of people have gone through it. Uh, most of them had reasonably good experiences and have had some uh, beneficial effects. But I've also talked to a couple of people who thought it was the worst experience of their lifetime. Uh, and mainly, I think it was the hallucinatory effects that really just scared them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my concern, of course, is is the medical one. If they don't have a a medical doctor on staff, if they're not screening the clients properly, like for heart conditions and things that can, yeah, absolutely. you know, possibly cause because a lot there's, there have been a lot of ibogaine deaths uh, from yes, people who have done this. I understand. Last I heard, there've been thirteen to date, but. Uh, it's unfortunately there's not really very good autopsy data on most of them, so it's very difficult to tell uh, exactly what the cause of death was because often these people have other drugs in their system as well. Uh, but it is uh, there's certainly enough uh, information out there to be very cautious about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just the other day I had somebody friend me on Facebook, uh, somebody from Africa, and as soon as he friended me, sent me a message. I, do you want to buy some uh, iboga bark? And it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> but the, yeah, there's, uh, there yes, seems to be a lot we of. We had uh, in in 1999, a colleague of mine and myself, Ken Alper, and I, and he's at NYU. Uh, we uh, we hosted the the first uh, and actually only, as far as I know, international conference on ibogaine, uh, and the. Uh, the a, one of the one of the ministers uh, from Gabon was there, and they they really thought this was going to become a cash crop for them uh, once uh, it started mm-hmm. to be used a lot. Unfortunately, it hasn't quite worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, the Ibogaine conferences are still ongoing. There's one uh, upcoming in Mexico soon. Yeah, there've been a variety of smaller conferences that that, that 
that are that have very different, uh, much looser organizations than ours, ours did. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think we've covered the the main topics I wanted to cover this evening. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, talk about before we finish the show? Uh, no, I, I think you've covered all the bases. I mean, my uh, my sincere hope is that eventually I will live long enough to see some people afflicted with the disease who who are helped by uh, the drug that I've been working on for a long time. It's uh, it, it's really a terribly misunderstood disease. Uh, people don't get the treatment they should get. Only about 15% of people who should get treatment actually do get treatment. Uh, the success of the treatments we have is very modest, at best 30%, 40% when it, uh, when it works. Um, so it's, uh, this is a, and it's something that the pharmaceutical industry historically has shied away from because they don't think there's a great deal of profit to be made and they think it's bad uh, PR for the company developing drugs for a segment of the population that they don't deem worthy. So th- this is a, an enormous need and the, the impact of something that has a, a, a really, real beneficial effect would be absolutely be enormous, and uh, it's something which um, that's what... Well, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, and I look forward to seeing the results of the clinical trials when they're finished. I do as well. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, and good night. Okay, good night.